also wanted to kind of show in that how many of us think we might not have people who care about us, but really there's a lot of people in the periphery that you might not realize who might not reach out to us all the time, but actually do care about us. And I think it's also on us to acknowledge that and look for that. And I think knowing that when we might not think we're loved, we actually are very loved by certain people and people just show it in different ways. And so bringing in those different relationships, like love stories throughout it was the way that I thought I could make it more of a palatable story that the reader could get caught up in amidst all of this talk of death. Because, you know, a lot of people die in their books, so you've got to give them something to hold on to, something that's hopeful and fun and kind of this adventure of Clover discovering who she is. And I think like the tagline in the US for the book is death she gets, it's life she can't quite figure out. That was a great line that the marketing team came up with because it really encapsulates for her the world of death is actually like a security blanket, but it's really learning how to live that is terrifying for her. Hey there, welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career by learning how to blend business with passion. We do that a few ways on Lit Match. The first of these is interviewing literary agents in order to learn more about their agenting style and what they represent. We also have first chapter deep dive analysis episodes to help us zero in and really understand what makes a manuscript stand out. And last but not least, you can listen to author interviews in order to learn more about the blend of writing and publishing. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to teach you both writing and publishing and support you in every step of your writing and publishing journey. I am absolutely ecstatic to share today's episode. This is a really special episode because I had the privilege of not only interviewing the incredible Mickey Brammer, who is the debut author of The Collective Regrets of Clover, coming out next Tuesday, May 9, but also because I was so honored to be given an advanced reader's copy of The Collective Regrets of Clover, which is my favorite read of 2023. This story speaks to me on so many levels. It embodies so many questions and topics that I love to explore in stories. And it's all driven by an incredibly engaging, unique, and socially awkward protagonist, which is so fun to follow. I really just can't rave about this book enough. And I'm not doing this as an affiliate. I just really believe in the story. I hope that you pre-order it before next Tuesday. Or go grab your copy next Tuesday because it is a special story. And what you get as part of this episode is a sneak peek of The Collective Regrets of Clover, why Mickey wrote it, and her questions and inspirations that helped bring it to life. In addition to that, we get to talk to Mickey about her writing, querying, and publishing experience. There is so much to learn from Mickey, and she could not be a greater literary citizen. So I just wish her all the world. And I'm so grateful to share this beautiful book and this incredible author with you today. Before we get into the episode, I do want to share the back cover of The Collective Regrets of Clovers. I'll read that to you now. Death she gets, it's life she can't quite figure out. From the day she watched her kindergarten teacher drop dead during a dramatic telling of Peter Rabbit, Clover Brooks has felt a stronger connection with the dying than she has with the living. 
After the beloved grandfather who raised her dies alone while she is traveling, Clover becomes a death doula in New York City, dedicating her life to ushering people peacefully through their end-of-life process. Clover spends so much time with the dying that she has no life of her own, until the final wishes of a feisty old woman send her on a trip across the country to uncover a forgotten love story, and perhaps her own happy ending. As she finds herself struggling to navigate the uncharted roads of romance and friendship, Clover is forced to examine what she really wants and whether she'll have the courage to go after it. Don't miss out on this episode. You're going to learn so much about writing, querying, and publishing all packaged in the next 60 minutes. Without further ado, I bring you the incredible Mickey Brammer and her debut, The Collected Regrets of Clover. Hi, Mickey. I am so excited to have you on Limits today. I know it's a podcast, but I'm holding up her beautiful, beautiful book, The Collected Regrets of Clover, coming out in May 2023. This is an amazing story, and I am so honored that you gave me an advanced reader's copy. What a privilege to read this beautiful story. So thanks for coming on and talking to me about it and talking about your writer's journey. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be on your podcast. I'm an avid listener, so it's very meaningful to be here. Fantastic. So Collection for Aggressive Clover is your debut. <laughs> and I'm sure that there's been a lot of writing journey experience before this debut. Let's introduce you to this audience if they haven't heard of you. What was your writer's experience like? What was your inspiration for the collective regrets of Clover? And how has your experience been mm -hmm. as you start to release and launch it? Yeah. So I'm actually a journalist and I have been a journalist for at least 15 years now. I started out in Australia. As you can probably hear, I'm Australian. I'm from Tasmania, but I worked as the editor of a pop culture magazine in Australia for quite a few years. And that was really interesting interviewing celebrities, you know, it was everything across pop culture, chefs, singers, musicians, directors, actors. It was a great way to kind of jump into my career. And then when I moved to New York 10 years ago, I was in Paris before that for a year writing. I wrote a column for a British magazine called France Today, and it was called My Life in Paris. And so it was basically like a, what's it like to be a, you know, 20 something in living in Paris and all my adventures there. And then I moved to New York where I got into design and architecture media, that's kind of what I fell into, which is actually one of my passions. And so for the past 10 years or so, I've been writing about art and design and architecture for publications like Architectural Digest, Elder Core, Dwell, Lux Magazine, things like that, which I love. And so I'd never really actually thought about writing a book. I had always admired people who wrote books because for me, I was used to deadlines. You know, you have a story due in two weeks, you write it, you submit it, you do your edits, and then it's done. You don't really ever think about it again. So to see people with one project just working away diligently, knowing that they're going to be aiming to write 70,000 words, 100,000 words, was just almost unfathomable to me. I didn't really see myself doing that. And people would always ask me, when are you going to write a book? And I'd always just be like, oh, maybe one day. And I thought probably if I did, it would be a nonfiction book. But then uh, I will say that I had, when I first moved to New York, I had a really, a job with a lot of downtime. It was as a copy editor. And because you're often waiting for people to give you stuff, but you still have to be in the office. So I did start writing to see if I could 
write 70,000 words, which I did, but I wouldn't say that it was a book. It was 70,000 words. So at least I knew I could do that. And so the idea came to me ever since I was a kid, I'd had a lot of anxiety around death, which I think a lot of people do. And one of the reasons for that is because nobody ever talks about it. And in Western society, it's quite taboo. And so it's something that I'd always carried with me. It wasn't debilitating, but it was something that was just always there. And kind of a few years ago, maybe like four or five years ago, I thought about maybe this is something I should explore. And I'm, as a person, generally someone, if I'm scared of something, I'll make myself do it until I'm not scared of it. So I thought, okay, well, instead of avoiding every book and every article or anything that deals with death, because it freaked me out a little bit, I'm just going to try and be curious about it and get to know it. Living in New York, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. So I go to talks about death and dying, talks about grief, mortality, all sorts of things. I went to some things called message circles, which are basically seances. I went to lectures on stoicism because they talked a lot about mortality and grief and really just tried to be as curious as possible. And in that, what I guess you could call research is I came across the profession of a death doula. And I was just fascinated by it because I thought who would do that, dedicate their entire life to basically watching people die. Like what a noble profession that is. And that must take someone really special to be able to do that, to look someone's pain in the eye and hold their hand, even when it's absolutely heartbreaking. And what a gift to be able to give to someone, especially when so many people do tend to die alone in hospitals, or especially the elderly. And so based on that, I thought, oh, well, who would do that? And then I thought, well, that would be a really great character in a book. And then kind of thought about it. I was mulling it over for maybe about a year just in my head and had written, I think, like one or two chapters and then joined a writing group where you had to submit on a regular basis. So that kind of got me actually seriously working on it. And then it was the pandemic and I had lockdown. I was in New York City. I couldn't go back to Australia because the borders were the borders were essentially closed or to get back, you know, the flights were really expensive and a lot of people needed to get back to see dying relatives or because they had health issues. So I definitely didn't want to take up one of those spots on the flights. I was in New York living by myself. Most of my friends had left the city. I kind of had two or three months by myself and I thought, well, maybe I should just sit down and write it, which I think a lot of people did in the pandemic, sat down and wrote a book. But it was a very interesting experience because I'm in Brooklyn and it was in the time where I think hundreds of people were dying a day here in New York City and there were just sirens all day and all night. I could see my neighbors being stretched out into ambulances and some of them didn't return. You know, I'd ride a city bike around the empty streets and I'd ride past the hospital and the morgue truck was there. It was a really strange time to be writing about death and especially as someone who's had anxiety about it, but it really made me think about it and think about all those people who were potentially dying alone because of COVID because their family members couldn't be with them, but that there were the doctors and nurses who would sit with them and death doulas in some cases, and they were the only person who was with them because of the quarantine. And so I think it became even more meaningful for me to be able to tell this story of what these amazing people do. And at the same time, I wanted to write something that presented death in a way that was palatable because the reason I never used to read anything about it, and I, there's plenty of books that address death, is because I always just found them too confronting and 
depressing and a little maudlin sometimes. And so I challenged myself to write a book about all of these themes that was also joyful and uplifting and hopeful and would kind of take the reader through it in a way that wasn't too emotionally taxing. And so that's where the character of Clover came about. A death doula. So by her, you know, she's in her mid thirties and is a bit of a recluse and socially awkward. So it's a, a kind of a later coming of age. And through her story, I hope that people can get so swept up in that particular story that all of the themes that I've woven through it that deal with the the heavier topics a little bit easier to digest. Wow, that's a beautiful explanation of how the story came to be. I personally, books about grief are some of the stories that I'm the most fascinated with. So your story screams everything up my alley. It's everything that I'm interested in. Clover is one of the most sympathetic characters that I've read in a long time. And you mentioned something about it being an honor to be with someone and to look someone with their pain. So I just I jumped and it's, it's early in the story, but so I'm not giving anything away. But I just want to read this because she's sitting just to give everyone a sense of who Clover is. She's sitting with a character on his deathbed and he is a very lonely guy and doesn't really have any loved ones. She talks about how probably half the people that she's been with in the beginning, she has 97 people. This is the 97th person that has died. And about half of them, she says, die alone. And she says, the most important thing is never to look away from someone's pain, not just the physical pain of their body shutting down, but the emotional pain of watching their life end while knowing they could have lived it better. Giving someone the chance to be seen at their most vulnerable is much more healing than any words. And it is my honor to do that and look them in the eye and acknowledge their hurt, let it exist undiluted, even when the sadness was overwhelming, even when my heart was breaking for them. I mean, come on, listeners, like you hear that and what a voice, what a voice. With Clover, your interiority, first of all, is just outstanding. The narrative, the character voice in this is is some of the most beautiful that I've heard in a long time. And I'm just really, really enthralled by it. The title, The Collected Regrets of Clover, speaks to a lot of what this story is and something you are dealing with death. It's a heavy topic, right? It's something... Mm -hmm. When I taught creative writing at the high school level, we talked about deep stories from being writers. But I always talked about how the only guarantee in life is death. That's the inevitable, right? So it is something that can feel taboo that people don't want to talk about because the idea that we all end and we don't know for guarantee wise, like what happens afterwards can be scary. But at the same time, it's reality and making peace with that is something that we all have to do as human beings. Clover is so interesting as a character because she is the opposite. She represents exactly what you just said. She's the person who's running towards death to help people through their dying days instead of running from it. And I would love to explore The Collector Regrets of Clover. Is that the title that you came up with when you pitched the story? Is that something that came to fruition through conversations with your agent, with your editor? And what does that signify on a character level, in a plot level, on what the story is really about. Yeah, it's always been the title. And it, I actually just threw it on there when I was querying. It was initially The Collective Regrets of Clover Brooks. And then I asked if we could just make it The Collected Regrets of Clover because there's just so many books out there now that is the something, something of the someone, someone. And just to kind of differentiate it a little bit. But it does have the two meanings because 
she physically does collect the regrets of the dying. She has the notebooks, confessions, regrets, advice, and she notes down people's last words. So there's that, but she also has collected her own regrets through life. And she's so obsessed with other people's regrets that she's kind of been ignoring her own. And so that's part of her journey in this book that she starts to realize, okay, actually, if I died, I would have regrets. What are those regrets? And is it possible for me to overcome them before I do die? Not that she's going to die anytime soon, but just knowing none of us know when that's going to happen. So she kind of does begin to address it herself. And I think that was so fascinating for me in my research. I did read a lot about what people regret on their deathbeds. And it's really surprising things. Like there are the big things, you know, I wish I'd told somebody I loved them, wish I'd not worked so hard, but some of them are just small things. Like I wish I had used the fancy laundry detergent. If I'd I'd spent a little bit more money on that, or I wish I'd learned the piano and things like that. And I think the thing about regret is, especially in Western society, we're taught that they're an inherently bad thing, which I don't agree with. I think If you can learn from your regrets, then they aren't in vain. And regrets are actually how we learn and grow. You know, if we didn't make mistakes, if we didn't stumble through life or meet challenges, then we wouldn't evolve as people and we wouldn't grow. So I think obviously there's probably some things that you regret saying in general and maybe or doing. For example, you regret not learning piano. You can kind of say, okay, well, now I'm going to do that and I'm going to do that for myself not knowing how much time I have left. And I think it's healthy to look at what your regrets are and see if there's anything you can learn for them or just be grateful for them that they they allowed you to become a better person. That's a beautiful perspective on it because I think that the idea here with what Clover is learning as well, it's interesting as she's collecting these regrets of dying individuals, like you said, a part of the story, a part of the irony in the story is that she's been ignoring hers, and that would be something she has to address in the plot. But it's just interesting to see that approach of collecting them because it helps you reflect before your deathbed, helps you live a little bit better. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that that is how we grow, is from our mistakes, from our regrets, if we reflect on them and and make efforts to change. With Clover, this is such a character-driven story. Mm -hmm. So with her, she is central to everything, the fabric of everything in this tale. And you had a beautiful inspiration for what you wanted to explore, death, and then you found the death doula and how that was going to be the profession of your protagonist. Was it difficult to come up with the concept now? Because I think that that's one thing that writers really struggle with is they have an idea, they can explain what they want to explore, what they want to talk about, but then they have to put that into a fiction story. They have to create a premise and they have to build that premise into a fully fleshed out balance of character and plot and how that works, how the plot challenges the character, how the character drives the plot. Was that difficult for you to take time? Do you have any tips for writers on how that came to fruition for your story? It was difficult actually because I don't really, I've never really written fiction seriously before. And so at the beginning I was like, okay, I have this concept. I'm going to make death palatable. And I've got a death doula and she collects people's last words in notebooks. And that was all I had. And then I thought, okay, how can I make those things into a story? I thought about, I really love coming of age stories. I like love stories, but not in necessarily the traditional romantic sense. Like I love 
love stories between friends, between siblings. She has a very important relationship with her grandpa, the love story of that. And I was also interested in loneliness in big cities because there's millions of people in New York. And yet I would say probably at least half the city is lonely because we can't work out how to connect with each other. And lived in other big cities as well. And it was kind of the same. And that was fascinating to me. And I think it's not that people don't want to connect, but they just don't really know how to. So I wanted to include an exploration of loneliness as well. And not in the way that, you know, often those loner characters in books are misanthropes who just hate people. And I don't think that is the case of all lonely people. I think just situationally, they've ended up there in life because of certain things. And they really do yearn for that connection, but they kind of freeze up when the opportunity comes. And so with Clover's story, it's kind of like she's content in this little world by herself, being lonely, a very solitary life. She only really hangs out with her 87-year-old neighbor and who was a friend of her grandfather's. And then all these kind of people coming to her life who are really wanting to connect with her and she resists it at first. And then these are the people who are slowly bringing her out of her shell. And I also wanted to kind of show in that how many of us think we might not have people who care about us, but really there's a lot of people in the periphery that you might not realize who might not reach out to us all the time, but actually do care about us. And I think it's also on us to acknowledge that and look for that. And I think knowing that when we might not think we're loved, we actually are very loved by certain people and people just show it in different ways. And so bringing in those different relationships, like love stories throughout it was the way that I thought I could make it more of a palatable story that the reader could get caught up in amidst all of this talk of death. Because, you know, a lot of people die in their books, so you've got to give them something to hold on to, something that's hopeful and fun and kind of this adventure of Clover discovering who she is. And, and I think like the tagline in the US for the book is death she gets, it's life she can't quite figure out. That was a great line that the marketing team came up with because it really encapsulates for her, the world of death is actually like a security blanket, but it's really learning how to live that is terrifying for her. Well, that's a perfect catch line. <laughs> As she goes through her plot, you've mentioned that love story, there are romantic factors in the story mm-hmm. and how this comes into play. But would you classify this as a love story or do you think that it's beyond that? It's no. that's love story is part of it, but not all of it. Yeah, I would agree. I think anybody who's coming at it and looking for a love story, a romance, is that they would be disappointed in that way because it's there is romance in there, but it's kind of one aspect of the plot. And what's um, interesting is like you just mentioned that there are various characters who love her. So the, the exactly. way that love stories evolve in the story isn't necessarily always a romantic one. Mm-hmm. Love stories can be their own story in itself. Yeah. And I did purposely try to hit the beats of a love story. Lovers meet the all is lost, things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But I tried to have her have those moments with different people and not always in the context of romantic love. So there's an all is lost moment in a friendship context, that kind of giving equal weight to love in all its kinds, not just the romantic love. That's just one of the many ways love is explored in the book. Sure. And that's why I feel like the story is so internally, the interiority is so important. It's so internally driven. It's so character driven. Her her understandings of death and then trying to figure out life. Going back to that catch line, it's death. She understands it's life that she hasn't quite figured out. 
I didn't phrase it ex- word for word, but the, I, the concept yeah. of it, that is really what the plot is. The hook here is that she has to learn how to live in the moment more mm-hmm. than just reflect on it at the end. Is that correct? Yes. And basically the theme of the book, which one of the characters says is you've been focusing your whole life on how to give someone a beautiful death, but the secret to a beautiful death is to live a beautiful life. Oh my and, gosh. And beautiful. to, you know, let yourself make mistakes and and fall in love, let your heart get broken. You know, that is what it means to, I mean, everybody has a different version of what a beautiful life is, but if you want someone to have a beautiful death, you have to allow them to live a beautiful life because at the end, then they won't have as many regrets as they might have if they didn't. That's so beautiful because the part of what I interpreted, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what I interpreted from what you just said was that part of living or part of living well is also making mistakes. Mm -hmm. So you can't be afraid of making mistakes in order to live, in order to die well, you have to live. And that will come inevitably with mistakes. And like we talked about earlier, it's about growth from that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So for the plot itself, what do you think are the main components that are happening in the plot? So it's not just, you know, I have a lot of writers who would want to be writing something very internally driven like this, very character driven like this, but it becomes a lot of just the character reflecting on their thoughts and their ideas and, and you're talking maybe even with beautiful writing, beautiful prose, but nothing is happening. How did you move the story forward? There was a lot of her sitting alone in her apartment with her pets and I quickly realized that that was not the makings of a good book. So I made it so, so we do see her with a few people who are dying, working with different clients at the beginning, just to kind of get a sense of what a death doula does, because I think many people aren't aware of that profession. So I really wanted to upfront say, okay, here's examples of her in action. And then she meets somebody who asks her to work with his grandmother And then as she gets to know this grandmother, who's this rich woman on the Upper West Side of New York, who used to be a photojournalist in the 1950s, one of the few female photojournalists, but she gave it up when she got married. She was only that way for a few years. But as Clover gets to know her and she visits her several times a week and through their conversation, she realizes the regrets this woman has. And part of what drives Clover is she when she learns people's regrets before they die, she tries to help them overcome them or resolve some. So it might be writing a letter to someone saying something, or there's a woman who regretted never taking up painting. So she buys her paints and canvas so that she can at least try doing that before she dies. And then she discovers this woman's regret is, you know, a long lost love. And then kind of takes it upon herself to see if she can find some resolution before the end. And that sends her on an adventure and also makes her have to open up to certain people. Um, There's a potential love interest for her. And there's also the aspect of the love story of this old woman, Claudia, which is another way I kind of wanted to incorporate the love story in without making it the central premise. And then she also has this neighbor who's determined to become friends with her. And that's kind of a subplot as well of Clover resisting that, but then slowly letting herself open up and trying these new experiences with the friend and learning what it means to be vulnerable with someone and really letting someone see you, which she's never really done before. And then the other thread is her dealing with her grief about her grandfather dying because he died alone while she was off traveling. 
when she was in her early 20s and she's always felt guilt about that. And that's partly what her reasoning for becoming a death doula was, is a little bit out of guilt because she feels like if she can keep giving these people a beautiful death, so to speak, and making sure they're not alone, then she's atoning for the fact that her grandfather died alone in his office at Columbia University. There's kind of a lot of different threads throughout that hopefully help propel it through so that she's not just sitting alone in her apartment. Great. When <laughs> you're coming up with those conflicts that were going to challenge her and call her to make decisions, did you have any strategy on how you started to come up with those ideas? Was it through research? Was it just through one day sitting down and listing out everything that you could think of that could be a potential conflict and then picking and prioritizing what that would be? How did you go about figuring out what would be the best conflicts to challenge Clover in how she moves forward in order to learn the lessons that she learns in the story? Yeah, I'm not much of an outliner, so I didn't really think of it in advance, but I was very lucky that I have a great critique partner who I work with and I really love brainstorming. So I'm not mm -hmm. someone who can kind of be an island and write a whole book by themselves and then put it out for feedback. Like I really love to have feedback as I, I'm going. So I would write a chapter without even editing it, send it to her. And so she really got to know Clover and all these characters as well. And she would really help me. Like I would say, oh, I really need her to kind of get from this point to this point, what situation could we put her in? And that was so valuable to have someone who's known it from the start and could bounce ideas back and forth and really understood what I was trying to do, understood my voice. And so that was really helpful. But I will say that a lot of the things that made it more plotty came when I signed with my agent, Michelle. She really helped me with that kind of bringing it from just being like a character-driven story to a character-driven story that has a compelling plot or a, at least a plot that keeps moving. Michelle's one of my favorite agents that I have interviewed, and that's something that we talked about. I think that is one of her specialties is helping mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> writers do that. So that's so interesting. Let's We've talked a lot about, so we have talked about the process, we've talked about the story. I do have questions for you about the research process and the editing process and your experience of becoming a published author, going from bourgeoisie, aspiring, querying to now officially mm -hmm. published. Yay. So for my audience here, because I know that a lot of writers have budding questions about this, when you did, how did you know, I guess, because it did sound like, you know, there was work with your, with yeah. your agent afterwards. How did you know when you were ready to query? How did you have that feeling of, okay, I think I've taken this draft as far as I can and I'm now ready to enter the query process. What was that like for you? I would say I, because I hadn't really been in the publishing world or the the fiction world, I didn't really have any idea how it worked, but which was kind of an ignorance is bliss thing. And I hadn't really ever, when I started writing the book, it wasn't because I wanted to sell it. It was more for my own sake because I wanted to process this anxiety that I have. And I thought, well, this is a great way for me to do it through this project. And then I think, when I got involved in a writer's group and hearing people talk about querying, I realized, oh, you know, maybe I could do that. And the co-working space I was part of had a querying workshop, which was great. So I kind of was like, well, I have a book. I may as well try and write a query letter. But I would, to be honest, I feel like I queried a little too soon. I could have done an extra draft or two before I submitted. And I was just very, very lucky that Michelle saw potential in it. But I think in, your voice is particularly strong, though, too. I think that that would probably grab a lot of attention as well. Uh, yeah, but I, I had potentially, yeah. And also, you know, it's a strange topic. And 
when I did start querying. So I think I did maybe two drafts and then I sent it to beta readers, just a couple of friends, and then I incorporated their feedback. So it probably was three drafts before I sent it to Michelle. And then I queried, they had probably about 10 agents. Michelle was always the one that I wanted, but everybody knows that you could, you should kind of query more than one. So I did kind of, I think I did it in, you know, sets of three, but I think it ended up being about 10. And some agents did say, you know, I just don't think I can sell death, mm-hmm. which is fair. And also you, if someone thinks that, then you don't want to be with them because right. this is a very particular novel with a very unique topic. And so you need someone who gets that. And Michelle just did. I could tell straight away that she really could see what I was trying to do. But she, when I first queried her, I actually, a couple of people had mentioned her name to me before I was even considering writing a book. I I had a a flatmate in New York who had worked with Michelle at the same agency at the same time and had just mentioned Michelle as someone she loved working with. Mm -hmm. And I have a really good memory for names. So when someone else mentioned, I was like, oh, I think that's who my flatmate mentioned. And so I looked her up and I found a webinar she did with the Authors Guild with one of her other authors, Zaina Arafat, who wrote a great book called You Exist Too Much. And I really loved their relationship, their rapport. I really loved that Michelle seemed like she was no nonsense. And I love people who are no nonsense, you know, someone who would be very supportive, but would be willing to tell me like it is when I need that, because I know some people prefer to be coddled or maybe protected from some of the less fun aspects of the publishing process. But I really like to know what I'm dealing with so I can make decisions based on that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty fine with criticism and rejection. So I'd much rather know the full story. And I could really tell that she would do that if I asked it. So and I just really liked her her manner. So then I queried her. And in retrospect, I didn't mention that we knew people in common, which is maybe a little bit cavalier, but I kind of felt like, you know, I really just wanted to do it myself. I wouldn't give that advice to everybody. I'd say if you know someone who can get the attention of the agent, then you should definitely do that. And then, yes, yeah, she saw my query and she read, I think, the the first few chapters and she said she liked it and she got it but she there was something wasn't quite working and she thought it was the the perspective because it was originally in third person and she said you know are you willing to try rewriting the whole book in first person and at first I was like oh no no I didn't say that to her but in my head I thought oh no that's not my voice you know I wrote this story in third person that's what it meant so it couldn't possibly be first person And then I was like, oh, well, maybe I could try one chapter. And I did it and I was like, wow, you know, this really lets me get into Clover so much more deeply because I think Michelle's point was with a character like this who's alone a lot and by themselves, like you can't really keep the reader at arm's length. You really need to get in her head. And so I did a few more chapters and then I sent those to my beta readers and said, hey, what do you think of it in this? And they're like, oh, this is much better. And then so I just went ahead and turned it all into first person. And that was before I had signed with Michelle because I knew even if I didn't sign with her that I wanted it to be in first person. So I just went ahead and did it. And I think that's really testament to Michelle that she could really identify that that was 
the thing that wasn't quite working because I had another agent, an agent who represents quite big authors, and she actually requested it two hours after I sent my query letter, which was really exciting. And she requested a full and she started reading it and then got back to me and said that she had stopped kind of at a certain point, which was about maybe a third of the way through. And I was kind of like, ah, but that's when everything starts, which is very naive because, you know, that was a sign that I had to move a lot of stuff closer to the beginning. But Mm -hmm. she, and she said, you know, I like the tone. I love the voice. I love the concept, but it's just not keeping me reading, which is fair, but it's kind of nice that Michelle kind of said a similar thing, but had a fix for it, you know, and that really meant a lot to me and kind of indicated that she was the right fit for me. So then after that, that's when I signed with her. And then we worked on the book again with also Danya Kufkafka, who wrote several, two great books. The most recent is Notes on an Execution, but she works at Trellis as well. And she gave me feedback as well. So with her and Michelle, we worked, they said the book needed more payoffs. Like there are a lot of things in the beginning that I kind of alluded to. And then they were kind of threads that weren't tied up in the end, which not all threads need to be tied up, but they made the point that you're putting the reader through all of this death stuff and emotion that like you've got to give them some payoffs in the end. So they gave me some suggestions and then I went away and based on those came up with my own and added in some more payoffs at the end and just tweaked a few things and it is much better for it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. I love several things that you're saying. Two of them that I want to point out particularly and ask follow-up questions to. The first is that you really did your research when you were querying literary agents based Mm -hmm. on even being able to identify aspects that were important to you in the business relationship. One of them being that you wanted to hear what was going on. You wanted honest feedback. You are not afraid of rejection. You wanted someone who was going to push you and give you all the information so you can make those decisions. You also mentioned that Michelle was always your top. But you had others that I'm sure that you queried. How did you go about selecting who was going to be on your list to query? Was it all based on these similar wants that you wanted in a business partner? And did you have similar research strategies with that? Because, Michelle, you said you actually had a referral from someone. The others, did you or did you not have referrals? What were some of your favorite resources that you used to study them? There were a few that people had recommended based on books that would be similar to mine. And that was kind of the approach I took agents who had worked with authors whose books were comps to mine or not comps, Mm -hmm. but, you know, along the same line. So people who weren't afraid of, for example, heavier topics like death because they are the ones selling it. So it had to be really essential that they were comfortable with it and also thought it was something that they could sell. And those were the main things, I think, I looked in the acknowledgements of the books I like and found who their agent was. And that was basically the approach. I, mm-hmm. Michelle was the only one that I kind of sought out a video or, or podcast. I mean, this was 2020, so there were probably fewer podcast interviews with agents then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I would have been able to find. I think now I definitely would search more mm-hmm. for interviews with them. But those are the main things. Yeah, I think the manner I would have and their working style I would have question when I spoke to them, but for the initial querying, it was more that the subject matter. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also did want someone who was an editorial agent because I really love feedback. I like Mm -hmm. constructive criticism. So I wanted someone who was willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And 
the other thing that I love is that you were getting so much of that editorial feedback after you signed with Michelle. And you mentioned collaboratively, you had feedback even from another agent within the agency. So I I've, I love Trellis. I love the collaboration. I think that they do amazing work. And it's great to hear that reinforced through your experience. In order to sign with an agent, you do need to have a conversation about, do you share your career vision? So when Michelle offered that offer of representation, yay, exciting call, the most exciting call, right? Yeah. At the same time, did you have questions for her? Were there things that helped you assess or confirm that you would be the best match for each other? The editorial aspect was important and she made it clear that she would give a lot of edits. Also, whether she worked book by book with her authors or if she was, you know, investing in someone as a long-term thing. And she said, yes, it's not just this first book. It's kind of you're taking them on for a career. And that was really important for me. You know, I would want someone that I can build a relationship with and grow with. And I had seen several of her authors she's been with for more than 10 years. And maybe it wasn't until their second or third book that they they really did well. And I loved that she was kind of in it for the long haul with them mm-hmm. and evolving alongside them. I think those were the main things. And just, I'm very much someone who just goes with their gut. And, you know, usually I can tell straight away if someone's a right fit or not. And and as soon as we chatted, I knew that she was. I had a feeling, but as soon as we chatted, I kind of knew. And so, you know, when she says, oh, well, I'd like to make the offer of representation, you can go away and think about it, which I didn't need to because mm-hmm. she was my top choice. And also I I kind of knew that she was right. And I definitely don't regret it. It has been better than I could have ever imagined. Awesome. And tell us a little bit more about, because the collective of Grants of Clover got a six-figure deal. So that was very exciting. I'd love to hear what can the what can the average author expect to happen after they sign with an agent? What does that process look like then from signing to selling to publishing? What's the order of events? I don't know if there is an average process necessarily. Okay. I think it does happen different ways from what I can tell. My experience was that we worked on edits for a couple of months and then we went out. It was in You worked on edits with Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a few rounds of further rounds of edits. So I probably did like three rounds with her Mm -hmm. and with Danya. And then from there, we went out in November 2021 to editors and we got a response within a week or so with interest. And it ended up going to auction, which was exciting. I had no, again, kind of ignorance is bliss. I had no idea how the process worked. So we went to auction, I think with five imprints. And so then we had, this was during lockdown. So we had Zoom calls with all the editors and then spoke to yeah the five different ones and then went to auction. And then kind of, we ended up with Sarah Canton at St. Martin's Press, mm-hmm. which another decision that I don't regret at all. That was such a great choice. And what I loved about Michelle in that process is that she would, you know, we'd have the call with the editor and then get off the call and then she would call me and she would really ask for what I thought of it, how mm-hmm. I felt about it before mm-hmm. she told me anything about the imprint or the editor or anything like that. And I really liked that. And that's excellent. A, that's her style in general is through our whole relationship, she kind of lets me say what my feeling is, what I think, and then she'll give me her opinion. So my choice isn't necessarily being swayed by her. 
which I don't think it necessarily would be, but sometimes, especially when you're new in an industry and don't really know how it works, you're inclined to just trust the person who's been in it a really long time and she knows what she's talking about. But, you know, when it comes to editor fit and everything like that, that is a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I really appreciated that. And then it sold almost immediately after in the UK and also a separate deal in Australia. Oh, interesting. So it sold in the UK and Australia first. No, just after the US. Just after the US. So yeah, so we signed with St. Martin's and then Mm -hmm. uh, like a couple of weeks later, signed with Viking in the UK Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also Penguin in Australia. Mm-hmm. And because that all happened relatively simultaneously with the editing process, I actually worked with all three editors at the same time, which is a, an experience I loved. I know sometimes that can be confusing for people having three different opinions, but because I have such wonderful editors, Sarah Canton in the US, Harriet Burton in the UK and Beverly Cousins in Australia, and they collaborated together to consolidate their feedback into one document before giving me the editorial letter and all of the edits. And all from different pub houses. Yeah. That's fascinating. It, it yeah. was amazing. And they there were some things, apparently there were conversations behind the scenes because they didn't agree on certain things. But by the time it got to me, it was all a united front kind of thing. There were a few things where they did still disagree and say, well, I think this and the others like, well, I don't necessarily think you need to change that and then but that was actually great for me because then I could decide which way I you know yeah. wanted to go personally. how cool that they were collaborating yeah before I were really giving you the feedback though because then you weren't receiving all this contrasting mm-hmm. feedback they had negotiated probably right. what with the best edits and then handed that off to you that's really interesting I've never heard of that before Yeah, I think it's happening more and more as books do sell simultaneously, but I don't think it's always as smooth as that was. Mm -hmm. I just loved it. I think all three of those editors love collaborating as well. So Mm -hmm. for them, it was a rewarding process. For me, I just felt so lucky because instead of just having one brilliant editor, I had three and I could bounce ideas off all of them. And they're coming from all different perspectives, which when you're working with a topic that is essentially universal, but from different cultures is not necessarily explored the same way. I mean, British and Australia and America, they are more similar, but it was just nice to have different Mm -hmm. perspective, different experiences. And also someone who's Australian writing an American character set in America, that was something that was quite interesting to navigate as well, because Mm -hmm. there's a few Britishisms that I thought I didn't even realize were Britishisms or Australianisms. They're the same in my book that Sarah pointed out, but that Harriet and Bev wouldn't have noticed because it was normal for them. So that was a really interesting process as well. Coming from the different regions, though, that automatically is going to make Clover more universal, like Mm -hmm. because you're, you're already adapting it for. Yeah, I think that's one of the most things that makes this this book so attractive to sell in multiple countries is because everyone has an experience with death. Exactly. And like actually this. now we have also at Trellis the foreign agent, Alison Malaika. She's amazing. And she has sold my book. I just I can't believe it. I think now it's currently in like 23 territories. Wow. Um, Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's really exciting, especially because, you know, it's that happening before the book has even come out. It's huge. It's huge. And, and they're very different. Like it's sold in China and South Korea and I think we're hungry and a lot of just very different Brazil. It's a lot of different places. 
and the letters that we received from the editors we signed there because I went to auction in a few of those places and just saying how much it resonated with them. Mm -hmm. And that was really rewarding to see that it's a story that can, because it is about grief and death, which we all Mm -hmm. experience, that is a human experience no matter where you are. How did you digest all of the editorial feedback? Was it ever overwhelming at any part of that process? Or did you take in bite-sized pieces? Did you tackle it all at once? What did that look like? I'm used to, because I'm a journalist, you know, you're just used to taking edits. And because you're always on a deadline, you don't have really much time to wallow in the misery of being edited. And I actually love it again, because I like brainstorming. I love collaboration. And I really think that no one is a good writer just by themselves. Like mm-hmm. that editors are brilliant and they really bring these things out in you they, and they push you to be much better. And I just, when I think of like the first draft of Clover to what's being published, which is probably like the 12th draft, mm-hmm. you know, and how much that has improved is just, which I wouldn't have been able to do alone. So I really welcome feedback. And obviously, you know, when you do, when someone questions something, there's always that little ego sting where you're like, oh, but no, that I'm right. And then I always am like, okay, well, I'm just going to sit down and digest it. And usually I would say maybe like there were 10% of things that I pushed back on and my editors were great when I explained why I wanted to keep it that way. And sometimes we're just like, oh yeah, that's fine. We understand that. Or they'd be like, oh, we can see what you're doing. How about you do this then to make that a little bit more clearer to the Mm -hmm. reader? So Um, that communication is key because it is important for writers to defend things that are important to them, but also be willing to change things that are not working. So if you can understand both perspectives on why something does or does not work, you Mm -hmm. can decide if it needs to go or if you can improve it in a certain way. So Mm -hmm. I love that you did that. And also just helping trim the fat a little bit. As a writer, I kind of am, I would say, relatively sparse in the way, not sparse, but I try to keep things simple. Mm -hmm. But when you get swept away with descriptions or when someone's alone, there's a lot of setting and things like that. And just, it was great to have their perspective on what they didn't think was necessary. And it made maybe me, a relief. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. For you sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot easier to cut. And sure. you know what? Sometimes it hurts when you cut it, but then when you read future drafts, it, you don't even miss it. These people know what they're doing. And I really trust that. Same with Michelle, my UK agent, Jemima. They're all experts and they all are doing really well in their careers. And they're in that position because they're talented and they know what they're doing. And I think there's something to be said for really letting people do their jobs and trusting that they're all trying to get the best outcome for you. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I love that there's always an understanding on why something needs to be cut because mm-hmm. of that experience. That's great. So after you've worked with an editor, after they've said, okay, green light is given, this is ready to go. What happens from there? Yeah. So then it goes to, I mean, through the rounds of copy editing and things like that. So sure. there's still a few things like that. But then we met the marketing and publicity teams and they talked through their plans and for social media. Then there's, that's the main thing and kind of they get it up on Goodreads. And so there's doing Goodreads reviews and things like that. And then I guess it's been mostly this year seeing things as the publicity kind of ramps up, you Mm -hmm. know, seeing things coming out in certain lists or 
projections for the spring and summer and then responding to people on social media, you know, mm-hmm. you, you start to get people tagging you in reviews. So just making sure you're keeping an eye out for those. Mm-hmm. That's been the main thing. And then being with a book that sold at a six-figure deal, do you think that your publicist team is larger than the average author? Or And if so, like, how do you work with your publicist team? How do you prepare for a book launch? What are some of the big things that you've had to do as the writer? I mean, I imagine that probably that I do have, you know, more support than maybe someone with a smaller deal, which is unfortunate that that's the way publishing works. I do feel really supported in the publicity and marketing. Some of that has been putting together Q&As that they can send out to booksellers, creating videos, social media assets and things like that. Mm -hmm. So those have been the main things. Those are the main things that other people have done for you or that you've had to do and had support in? That I've done, you know. That you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you have someone to bounce ideas off of before you actually post something. That's great. So you have direction in that. Are there any tips that you can offer writers that have worked effectively for your promoting of your story? Anything that's worked really well? I think I did. Like, I'm not someone who generally likes to put myself on my social media. Uh, And I resisted that for a while. And then I kind of realized that people weren't really getting the why I wrote the book. Even people I knew, I'd tell them, oh, I wrote this book and it's about death, but it's a happy book about death. And people would just be like, okay. And I could tell they were a bit confused. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's all the... That's the key of it though. That's the, yeah. the hook factor is that it's a happy book about death. I think that's yeah. why it sold so well, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Especially um, post-pandemic. So Yeah. And so I thought, well, okay, there are, you know, the descriptions on Goodreads and Barnes and Noble, all the sites has a little bit of a synopsis, but maybe I should just make a video explaining why I wrote it. Sure. For all those reasons that I explained to you earlier. And so I did that and that really got a lot of views and a lot of people I know were finally like, oh, I get it now. I get Mm -hmm, what this mm -hmm. is. This sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. But I think because it is such an odd topic, people just didn't really know what to expect. And so that's where social media did really help me. Mm -hmm. Yes. See, that's so interesting because I guess I'm just your target reader automatically because when I read what this was about, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want to read. I understand that completely, but it would it's great to hear because there are a lot of target readers that maybe would have missed the message that now understand the message. That's mm-hmm. wonderful that you've attracted more target readers because it's actually something that they're interested in. And it's just about a deliberation of the content itself. It's great. We are getting towards the top of the hour, so mm-hmm. we'll be nearing into lightning three that I mm-hmm. that I like to ask at the end of every podcast where I ask you three quick questions and you can give me three. You used to always say one sentence answers, but most of the time people don't get them in one sentence mm-hmm. and that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. So I just will call it a lightning three and you can answer those last three questions. Before we do that quickly, I would like to say, are you writing something new now? Are you on to your next book? And if so, I'd love to hear about it. How's that going? Yeah, it's I, so I got a two book deal in several markets. And so I've been working on the second book and I really wanted to have it finished before this one comes out. And so I'm very close to the first draft being done. I'd say it will be done by the time the book comes out. Excellent. And it's kind of similar because the same way that I started with a premise of, you know, exploring anxiety around death. 
I started with the premise of love between siblings. So a, a sibling love story, not in an incestuous way, but in sibling love. And I'm really interested in the way how we can be so close to our siblings when we're kids and then for whatever reason drift apart or have fallings out. And I know so many people who are estranged from their siblings and it just fascinated me. So I will say that it is a story that that's the essence of the story. And then I've kind of created a narrative vehicle similar to Clover. That oh, Mickey, you're one of those themes. Yeah, you're you are, I'm just going to be your biggest fan because you're writing everything that I want to learn more about and am attracted to as a reader. So yay. Do you have a publication date already for that one or is that? No, just- I, it depends on when I do finish it and yeah. submit it. And also there's many rounds of edits. Right. It'll go to my agents and things like that. So I think a while. Yeah. Okay. I was like, cause I know the collective regrets of Clover moved faster some, than some novels, right? So this one may or may not be within the next two years, but we'll keep, we'll stay posted. <laughs> yes, who knows? Yeah. I don't think that's really up to me. Well, it's yeah. up to me to finish it, but yeah, other right, than right. that, it's out of right. hands. And are you working with the same editors as well? Yeah, Excellent. and I have actually talked to them all and they'll all edit it together again because I really enjoyed that process and so did they. So my Michelle and my British agent are going to both look at it first and yep. then give me feedback and then I'll incorporate their feedback and then work will submit to the editors and then they'll do that from there. And you have a different literary agent for a different region. So it's not for Michelle the UK, for yes. everyone. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Did Michelle recommend who it was or did you have to go through your own query process with that? No, she reached out to, reached out. to yeah. Jemima. That's so I, interesting. And it sounds like you do, you work on the book and you had said that that was a question that you asked Michelle earlier. Do you work on the books before they go off to market? So you already have a deal and you know that you're going to be working with a certain editor, probably the concept was approved before you start yeah. working on it, but you yeah. work with your agents before they say, okay, now it's ready to work with the editor. So you don't work with the editor right away. Is that I mean, right? I, I think I could. Yep. I just like as much feedback as possible. And sure. I figured the more expert eyes on my book, the better it can be. So I kind of asked if Michelle and Jemima would give me feedback first. Great. I love that you advocated for yourself and what you needed. That's wonderful. Important for writers to remember that they need to advocate for themselves too. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, this has been so insightful. Thank you for walking us through your process. Let's do the lightning three. Let's move into mm-hmm. the lightning three. My first question for you is that I'd love to know a piece of advice, either on something that you didn't know before you started this path to publication, a piece of advice that was given to you that really panned out and worked well to support you in that process or a piece of advice that you learned along the way that has helped you maybe tackle something that you didn't expect about the publishing process and helped you handle that as you went through it? I would say, remember that no one's a better advocate for you than you, because you can have the most amazing agents and editors and publicists and marketers, which I do, but they also have many different books that they're working on and many different authors they're working with. So they only have so much time. And so the only person who's keeping track of all of that is you. So don't be afraid to speak up, to follow up, to ask questions, because it's not that they're necessarily not concerned with these things. It might be just that they're so busy that it has slipped their mind or they haven't really thought of it. So I think really trust that you are the best person to advocate for yourself. Beautifully said. Thank you. And that's perfect. It leads us right into... My second question, something that we actually were talking a little bit off podcast. My question is, 
it's equally important for, at least I believe it's equally important for a writer when they're querying to not only be researching the literary agent and the literary agent that they're querying and know why they connect and why they work well as a business partner, but equally important to look at the agency. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear what you love about Trellis and what has really worked well for you about that agency that has supported you in your process. And is there anything that you think that's important to consider for a querying writer to how they look at an agency? For me, I really love, uh, there's so many things I love about Trellis, but again, as someone who loves collaboration, I love that that's their approach. Mm-hmm. All of the agents there really support each other. They work together, they brainstorm together. And I think that is wonderful because that can only benefit a writer to have more heads thinking about your book. I love that their focus is really giving a hand up to people in publishing that have been from or that are from traditionally marginalized or minoritized backgrounds who don't get the opportunities that they should. And Trellis really makes a point of doing that and not only doing that, but getting those people big deals and deals that they deserve that publishing has traditionally kept from them. So I really love to be part of an agency that does that. And just they really encourage community among their writers. They have a mentor program. So I've been paired with a published author who's really given me advice through the process. And they really think through how they can make the process easier and more transparent for the author. And that's something I really appreciate. Awesome. Quick follow-up question to that. So I'm cheating a bit and sneaking one in here. I believe that Trellis is considered a boutique agency. Is that right? Do you think that there are differences between collaboration at a boutique agency versus a big agency? Or did you always want to query to a boutique agency for the reasons that you just specified, the collaboration? No, actually, when I signed with Michelle, she was actually at her old agency before Trellis. And then she told me she was starting Trellis. And, you know, did I want to be part of that? And I love being a part of new things. I love seeing people's ideas come to life. And I really, for me, that's not a risky thing. I really love to just, when someone has a vision, that's really exciting for me. So mm-hmm. it was a no-brainer for me to to go with her. I don't know because I haven't had an experience with a big agency, so I'm not really sure, but I do really like everybody at Trellis knows you and they're always responsive and you're not always dealing with assistance and things like that. So I think that's probably a benefit of it being slightly smaller. Mm-hmm. Special. I love that you followed her. That's great. Mm-hmm. Fun. And that you're not afraid of new ideas. It's going to bode well for you, I think, as you continue <laughs> to write more great stories. My third and final lightning question for you, we're going to turn back to the Collective Regrets of Clover. Something mm-hmm. very wise that you said to me off podcast was that once it's published, it's now out of your hands. And I believe that deeply. I think that there's a common saying that says that once a story is published, it becomes the readers, no longer the writers, because how readers interpret it is different, right? There's subjectivity to that. I would love to know, what do you hope readers get out of the story? What's something that you hope that they can connect with in their experience or just something that the specialness of the story, what it has to offer? What do you hope it does for readers? I mean, many things, you know, I really tried to weave in a few different things. One is that I hope people who are what society might class as misfits or learners feel seen and a little bit more understood that they're beautiful people. And, you know, really it it could be just due to circumstance that they are the way they are. 
people who are grieving, I would really love for them to feel a comfort in that because in Western society, we're really, we really see grief as something that should be gotten over at a point, which I don't think is true. I think if you love someone, you'll likely grieve them forever. And it just, the way you grieve them will just shift. And that's a strong theme throughout. So I really wanted to kind of have that be a comfort for grieving people to feel like they're not being forced to get over their grief. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I just hope that people will consider the questions that Clover asks her clients and herself about what your regrets might be at the end of your life and really take a look at your life now and think, what is my version of living a beautiful life and how might I go about getting closer to that while I still can, knowing that in my time could be up at any stage. So mm-hmm. I hope that it really just makes people squeeze the most out of their life and their relationships with their loved ones. Extraordinary. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nikki. That's a beautiful answer. I am thrilled to share Mickey with everyone here. I hope that you are as excited to read The Collective Regrets of Clover as I was and am. I'm sure I'll be reading it multiple times, but I will make sure to include all the links you need in order to find this beautiful, beautiful debut. And I hope that you go purchase it. So thank you, Mickey. Thank you so much. Is there anywhere that we can find you if people are looking for you? Uh, yeah, on Instagram is where I'm most active and that's just Mickey Brammer. And yeah, that's usually where I share the most content. I'm on Twitter, but not very often. So okay. so I'll make sure to include your Instagram and your yeah. links, but follow Instagram if you, if you don't want to be following Mickey. Yes. Oh. All right. Well, Mickey, thank you so much. What a beautiful interview. And thank you all for your time and the wonderful stories that you're putting into the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to chat and to share Clover with the world. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me for this special episode of Lit Match. I couldn't put this book down, and I can't wait for you to pick this book up and fly through the pages and experience all the big emotional feels that the story will very likely trigger. You can pre-order The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brammer now. It releases next Tuesday. May 9th, 2023. And if you're listening to this episode past that date, run to the store and grab your very own copy. If you're enjoying Lit Match and you'd like to find ways to support me, first of all, thank you so much. I appreciate anyone who takes the time to support Lit Match. The best way to do this is to rate and review the show and to share this show with kindred spirits like you who want to learn more about the writing and publishing process. This gives me the best chance at finding more writers who are eager to learn how to grow their writing craft or who want to understand traditional publishing and the query process. If you have any recommendations for LitMatch, I always welcome and appreciate all of your emails. I do take your emails seriously and do my best to respond to them. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. I hope you'll join me next week. We have a first chapter deep dive analysis coming up next Tuesday with an amazing book coach, Samantha Skull, who specializes in mystery, thriller, and suspense. And we will be taking a close look at the first two chapters of Riley Sager's The House Across the Lake. It was such fun to dive deep with a mystery, thriller, suspense expert in exploring why these pages hooked me so much as well as so many other readers and continued to maintain that momentum throughout the story. Until next time, happy writing. And if you're in the query trenches, good luck and persevere. 
Although it only takes one yes, I hope that that yes comes from the best literary agent and business partner for your writing career. I'd love to hear when you sign with your match. And of course, celebrate your book when it comes out. 